Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Ackeson podcast on justthenews.com. I hope you'll check out all the Just the News podcasts. You can go to justthenews.com and see the list of them on the homepage. Today, I speak with singer-songwriter John Andrasik, Five for Fighting, who was so upset by the way the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan was conducted, it motivated him to write a new song. In today's increasingly managed information landscape, independent journalism has never been more important. Support factual reporting without the censorship by visiting CherylAckeson.com and click the Store tab. Proceeds from sales go to causes related to independent reporting, including the new ION Awards I'm sponsoring to encourage accurate, off-narrative original reporting. Also, check out my bestsellers on this topic, Stonewall, Slanted, and The Smear. And thanks for being part of the solution. When I first played my wife the song, you know, she had the reaction to the song, but then the production was different. She goes, what does this song remind me of? What does this song remind me of? And I'm like, No Quarter from Zeppelin. And she's like, yes, you know, because it's got that crazy little funky old organ vibe and it's kind of slow and moody. And when I was trying to find keyboards for this track, I was trying to find that Zeppelin Rhodes, but I just couldn't find it. And I just kind of picked this one and ended up being that one. But yeah, my daughter can quote you most of the Zeppelin catalog, certainly the Queen catalog, ACDC. So like your daughter, it's good that they, they know the great ones. And that's how my daughter gets me to pay for tickets to concerts. She'll say, <laughs> Steven Tyler is going to, Aerosmith's going to be in town. Do you want to go? Or we saw... Elton John in the last yeah. two years, you know, all the classic stuff. That's fun. Well, who are some of the musical talents that influenced you? Yeah, you know, I'm kind of a child of the 70s singer-songwriters. I think, you know, it's very cliche, but I have to start with the Beatles just because they were so prolific. The first record I ever bought was a Stevie Wonder record, Songs in the Key of Life. Huge Stevie Wonder fan. And then, of course, the piano players, you know, Billy and Elton. My first concert was Billy Joel at the Forum, Glass Houses. And I think from that day on, I wanted to do that. It's really Elton and his, you know, Yellow Brick Road, Joni Mitchell, James Taylor. It's kind of the usual suspects for me. I was a rock guy too. You know, I had Tommy from The Who in my car for 20 years. Certainly Steve Perry, Queen. So it's really that era that formulated my kind of style, you know, the, the songs that have a beginning, middle and end, you know, Cats in the Cradle, those kind of songs. And um, I think that may be why some of the songs have stuck around because they have that kind of storytelling vibe. But I still listen to that stuff to this day. Would you say you consider yourself more of a pianist who has a great voice, you know, who sings, or are you yeah. a singer that happens to be able to play the piano really well? Probably neither. I think I have a voice that's recognizable, which is the key. And I can decently play the piano. Um, oh, that's being very modest. I think well, you're extraordinary yeah. at both. Well, thank you. I mean, Ben Folds is a real piano player. I'm a guy who uses piano to write songs. I'm not going to wow you. I'm not going to do an Elton John like piano solo standing on the piano bench. But I play proficient enough to be able to write. And I play a little guitar, again, proficient enough to write. But really, I'm a songwriter. That's kind of 
where I kind of make my bones. And I've been blessed too to have a voice that is recognizable and kind of fits some of the sentiments of my songs. I wish I could, you know, I wish I could be a rock dude and, you know, really sing heavy metal. This song was actually the rockest song I've ever done. And I really didn't hit much falsetto, which was interesting for me. There was a lot of things about this song that was different than anything I've done before. I'm very blessed to be able to do this and to be able to do this this long, actually. Well, we'll talk about the new song in just a minute, but by way of background, a lot of people probably remember the Superman song. Yeah. And at first, before I read a little bit about it, I thought you wrote that right after 9-11, but I guess you wrote it before 9-11 and it somehow became very popular right afterwards. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, Superman was kind of a fluke. You know, it's an example of how so many stars have to align. I'd had a song called Easy Tonight that was out on Columbia Records, and it was a hit at the singer-songwriter radio stations, but those don't sell any records. But it was just enough of a hit for them to let me go to another song. And I said, well, I have this song, Superman, and it's a little different, but if I'm going to go off the cliff and this is my last chance, I'd like to try this song. And they're like, you're crazy. You know, the piano is not on the radio. It's the age of Lilith Fair, boy bands, grunge music. And I'm like, well, if I'm going to go down in flames, let me at least take the big swing. I can't stand to fly. I'm not that naive. I'm just out to find the better part of me. I'm more than a bird. I'm more than a plane. More than some pretty face beside a train And it's not easy to be me I wish that I could cry Fall upon my knees Find a way to lie About a home I'll never see sound So they put it on and radio didn't want to play it. They thought it was too slow, just the lyric was too deep or whatever. And all of a sudden we got a call that Superman was number one in the Philippines. <laughs> and everyone wow. was like, what? Exactly, what? <laughs> so we saw it resonating and then we started to see, you know, at certain radio stations started to get a reaction, but it was still took a long, long time. Finally kind of hit that tipping point and became a popular song. And it was on its way to becoming kind of a worldwide very large hit. And I was actually in London presenting Superman to the European offices of Columbia Records. And I was supposed to do it the night of 9-11. And of course, when 9-11 occurred, I was like everybody, I was in a hotel room, saw the first plane hit, wasn't sure what was happening, saw the second plane hit, started calling all my friends in New York, couldn't get through, sat in a hotel for eight days because there were no plane flights, finally got a plane back. I remember the pilot was so kind because we were all so shaken. He said, look, I know you're scared. I'm going to get you home. And I'll never forget him saying that. I was so grateful. Landed in O'Hare, kind of kissed the pavement. And I was kind of aware that folks were using Superman, but I didn't realize until I got home that virtually every kind of news channel, CNN, Fox, 
they were doing these videos with Superman paying homage to the heroes that ran into those buildings. And then a couple of days later, I got a call for the concert for New York. Again, it happened so fast. It was surreal. I just gotten used to hearing my song on the radio and now they want me to go to the concert for New York. And, you know, playing that concert again was something that's hard to describe even 20 years later. But then Superman did kind of become, for many people, one of the 9-11 songs that kind of remember the victims and pay tribute to the heroes. Though it's had a lot of different contexts for so many different organizations, especially children's organizations and charities. And so, again, to this day, it's hard to fathom what it became because it was just this one little song that the record company didn't want to put out. (laughs) And then, but that's how the world works sometimes. What did you have in mind when you were writing that song? prior to 9-11? You know, the song was, as usual, when you're kind of a young songwriter, even though I was in my mid-20s, you know, the song was a little woe is me. I was, like many artists, hitting the wall of the record business. People would say, oh, you're a good singer, but you're not a good enough songwriter. You're a good songwriter, got a good enough singer. And, And as a songwriter, you know, or as an artist, or maybe as a journalist, you just want to be heard. You want to be given a chance. You want an audience to decide. You don't want some guy in a chair to decide. So I think it was a little selfish at the time because it's not easy to be me, was me. I'm like, come on, I just want to be heard. And I tell people, you know, Superman, I couldn't write today because I've realized in the last 20 years, you know, it's pretty damn easy to be me. It's pretty (laughs) damn easy to be most of us. And when I've seen, you know, what that song means to Gold Star families or people with ALS, or whatever context my songs have been used in, I could write 100 Years Today because I'm in that song, but I couldn't write Superman today. But at the time, you know, I was was upset. I was frustrated. And that's usually when your best songs come. Well, it, it doesn't much matter, I think, as we come through the decades, where we are sometimes compared to others. You can feel your own tragedy inside your own self, depending on the place where you're at at the moment. I guess it's with the benefit of hindsight, we get to look at, other people's circumstances and see those things. Again, before we move to today, 100 years, I just remember every time I heard that song, it's one of those like, woohoo. <laughs> and I watched it again last night. I'd never seen the video. I watched it again last night or watched it for the first time, listened to it again. And it's just so poignant. It's like a cat in the cradle kind of vibe. Well, you describe what you had in mind when you wrote that. Yeah. You know, a lot of songs are kind of post-it notes to yourself. And some of them are based on sentiments that we have every day. And, you know, we talk about living in the moment, right? Or appreciating the moment. And at that time in my life, I was having a pretty great moment. You know, Superman had become a hit song for the first time I had a career. People were singing my songs back to me. I had two beautiful young children, but I tend to be one of those people that obsesses on the past and, you know, freaks out about the future. You know, I'm very rarely in the moment. And, you know, I had one of those days, the kids were sitting on my lap and I'm like, dude, you know, can you take two seconds and just appreciate what you have now? Cause you're not always going to have that. And I'm like, well, you know, maybe there's a song here for me, you know, maybe, maybe nobody's really written this song in a certain way. And, and it kind of came to me, you know, is there you know, wish better than this when you only got a hundred years? And then I thought, well, maybe the verses should be the stages of our lives. Counting the ways to where you are I'm 
once wanted to for a moment, and she feels better than ever. And we're on fire, making our way back from Mars. Fifteen, there's still time for you. Time to buy and time to lose. Fifteen, there's never a wish better than this. When you only got a hundred years to live, and of course, the moment's not always great. Sometimes it's horrible. Sometimes it's tragic. But it's all we have. So that's kind of where the song came from. And it took you know three four months to get it right. But I think the reason that song is connected is because we all understand that, and we're all somewhere in that song. And to me, it's in a way I appreciate. Hundred years more now than Superman because I'm living through it, and you know I was right about the midlife crisis when I wrote it. <laughs> I wasn't there yet, but when I hit it, yeah, I was right. And now I'm in the bridge, you know. And pretty soon, you know, well, ten years I'll be in the vamp. So that song too is really special, and it's still nice to hear it. Graduations and you know weddings and funerals and all the all the life moments. So your newest song. When I heard that, I'm married to a Vietnam War veteran, combat veteran, and it kind of reminded me of a war song. You know, yeah. when my husband spends a lot of time telling me, you know, those songs you listened to in the late '60s and early '70s, those were war songs. Like a lot of popular songs I didn't know as a kid were really kind of written about the Vietnam War. And I don't know, this kind of had that feeling to me. Why don't you talk about? Boy, you wrote that at supersonic speed. Well, you're right. And again, I didn't have. A master plan, because to be honest with you, when I started writing it, I had no intention of writing a song to release. I was just writing because I was mad and I was hurt and I was angry. And for me, usually when that happens, kind of like Superman, I just go bang on the piano. I have no idea what's coming. But as it evolved, I kind of noticed.、Um, I actually wrote it on the piano first, and I recorded a version of it on the piano, and it was it was good. But I'm like, it just doesn't have the depth. And so I started playing with these kind of keyboards and these vintage keyboards. And it was in the back of my mind. There is a lot of analogies between Afghanistan and Vietnam. Frankly, I think that Afghanistan is much worse. But I'm like, this should kind of have some semblance of a Vietnam war song because we're watching it happen again. And the production is very simple. It's a keyboard, it's a shaker, and it's my vocal, which is not really how you make records these days. But I agree. Somebody sent me a note the other day, a writer, I think from Barstool, or sent a friend a note saying, you know, it really reminded him of like a Neil Young song from the late '60s. And I'll take that because I think those songs mattered, and those songs were bold, and those artists were not afraid. So the fact that you picked up on that is actually pleasing to me because I do think there is some of that in there. What are you saying in the song? Well, I think there's two main focuses of the song, and then we can get into some of the nitty gritty. But to me, the two main focuses is the American promise. We broke our promise. We promised to take care of those people that risked their lives to work with us. Now, the promise to not leave American citizens behind—that should be a given. So the fact that we did that is an outrage. I think that will last for as long as we're a country. So that's just insane. But to leave all the folks who risked their lives for freedom to the Taliban. To me, that's inexcusable, and I don't understand. And why we didn't extend the deadline, I don't understand. And we can get into all that stuff. But basically, the American promise to me matters. 
everybody knows no man left behind. And in the past, that includes our people, our allies. We didn't do that. And the other side of it is accountability. And I'm very concerned with the lack of accountability. I was just watching Blinken on the news this morning. They still haven't said we made a mistake. Not once. They said, oh, the, you know, the Afghan army fell and it was, went really fast. They still haven't said, you know, we're sorry we messed this one up. We should have done that better, which to me is surreal and dangerous. So when I was kind of writing this song, it really started with the 13 soldiers that were killed in the suicide bombing. That to me was a straw. I had to write something. And I really wasn't writing anything to like start singling out people. But then when the president gave his extraordinary success speech, I was like, okay, it's a politician. Obviously, this is being run as a political operation, not a military operation or a human, human rights crisis operation. But that's the president. He's political. But then when General Milley and General Austin came out and echoed, well, everything went to plan. Boy, what a great air evacuation. I was really stunned and scared because I've always felt that our politicians are politicians. They're going to say stuff that doesn't make sense. They're not going to tell the truth. But our generals are the adults in the room. And if it gets really serious, there's going to be someone there that will say, hey, this is what we need to do. This is what we don't need to do. And then, of course, when Secretary Blinken came out and again, doing what he's doing today, just echoing, yeah, you know, it was going to happen no matter what, kind of went according to plan or there wasn't a plan. And to me, it's just surreal and scary. So that's when I decided, look, somebody has to call these guys to account. And I wish it would be someone besides me <laughs> because I, I'm just some you know, nostalgia songwriter. So I went after them. I went after Blinken, Millie and Austin because I think making this a political exercise is incredibly dangerous for the future. And I hope that there is some accountability. I hope this song kind of forces some people to listen and get some traction to insist on that accountability. Because if we don't, wait till China comes knocking, wait till Russia comes knocking. So that was really where the song came from. And that's why I felt I really had to go after those three hard. And I think I did. Well, one thing you mentioned that they've received criticism from Democrats and Republicans for, as I say, doing the withdrawal backwards. Yes. I think in sixth grade, a sixth grader could have explained how to do that better. I'm certainly no expert, but just talking to the special inspector general for Afghanistan reconstruction over the years and people who've been there and served there, I would have certainly at least put in the scenario table that it could have fallen very, very quickly, perhaps even overnight, because we knew these soldiers were paid to fight we know that a lot of times they're agreeing with the U.S. because we are there and we are the ones in charge. But as happens in many places in the world, the minute we're gone, allegiances can change. This happened in Libya. This is not the first time something like this happened. And I think one of the worrisome things you touched upon is they keep explaining one of the reasons they didn't know this was going to happen is because, well, nobody predicted in their circle intelligence they're claiming that it would fall within a couple of days without understanding that's the problem. If nobody in your circle predicted that, that's not the defense, that's the issue. And then the same people were to believe now are making the right decisions on how to move forward and on other foreign policy decisions without acknowledging the fact that if you're that wrong, if you couldn't foresee something that happened and your defense is that we just didn't foresee it, 
That's not a real good mea culpa. Well, and not just that, the fact that we didn't change strategy when things were falling apart. I still haven't got a, a good reason why we didn't extend the deadline. Yeah, sure. I mean, we could go back and say, look, it was obvious you shouldn't have gotten rid of Bagram. It would have been much easier. Obviously, when the Taliban said, all right, you can have security at Kabul, we should have taken it and let people walk to the airport. So you can go back and enumerate them. But to parrot the extraordinary success line and say, look at this squirrel evacuation. To me, it's surreal and dangerous. Got blood on my hands. Got blood on my hands. And I don't understand what's happening. There's blood on these hands. kicked me into writing this song or actually having whatever nerve to put it out. I was driving to a weekend vacation with my wife and my son. And this was a couple of days after the last soldier left. And I got a call from a friend. And this friend does amazing work, philanthropy work. One day I want you to talk to this person because it'll give you hope. And some of the things I didn't even want to say he or she has done is incredible, saving lives in Africa and other countries. But this person called and said, hey, I need a connection. I'm like, why? And this person said, you know, I'm working on evacs from Afghanistan. We got AMSITs and SIV holders. And I'm like, what's an AMSIT? <laughs> it's like, oh, American citizen. And then we were talking and, we're, and then all of a sudden we just stopped. And I said, are we really talking about private citizens going to rescue our people and Afghans because our government left? And there was just silence. And then we both started like tearing up and crying. Like, this is not happening. This is impossible. And then I heard about the money that they have to spend to bribe the Taliban to give you the checkpoint. So that to me was like, we're really in a place in our country where we leave our people there. We leave the SIV holders there. We leave the Afghans to be slaughtered and we have to go get them. And I'm on this crazy phone call, this old singer songwriter dude trying to help connect some people to go rescue Americans in Afghanistan. What kind of world is that? I have a song called, What Kind of World Do You Want? This is not the kind of world I want. 
So that too also really spurred me to write the song, record the song and put the song out because that, that is unacceptable. And as you said, the fact that Joe Biden, and again, I hate to just, to me, if it was Donald Trump, I'd be saying the same thing. If we were in the same position with Donald Trump, I'd be saying, if Donald Trump, Joe Biden came out and said, we will leave no Americans behind. Two or three weeks later, we left Americans behind. Nobody's been fired. Nobody's resigned. That to me is dangerous. I'm not a huge Trump fan, to be honest with you. But in the Trump administration, I don't know, six, seven generals resigned because they felt that they couldn't work with him or he wouldn't listen to them or that they felt his direction was bad for the country. And I'm like, you know, that's the way it should be. If you don't feel you can support this president, resign with honor. But not only that, they parroted the extraordinary success line. More with John Androsik on Afghanistan and our military after a short break. Tasks, deadlines, and projects. What if your teams had a tool that brought everything together? Trello is the project management tool that powers collaboration for over 2 million teams across the globe, including 80% of Fortune 500s. Trello brings teams together by tracking daily to-dos and provides a high-level view across projects and teams. From product development and design to support and production, Trello helps all teams move their work forward together. Thousands of IT admins around the world trust Trello to keep their work safe. With Trello, your teams will have access to hundreds of top-tier integrations they can rely on. A big reason why Trello is top-rated for employee satisfaction. It's where companies do their best work. Trello for enterprise. Learn more by visiting trello.com slash for enterprise. That's T-R-E-L-L-O dot com slash for enterprise. And I'll tell you, Cheryl, I did a little research because I'm pretty stupid. And I'm like, is it just me or is this Millie guy, you know, just some kind of political player? And I went and I found this Wall Street Journal article. I'm going to read a little bit to you. It was from September 8th by Frank Sobchak and Matthew Zeiss talking about the army needs to understand the Afghan disaster. And one of the paragraphs stay, and I'll start in kind of the middle. American generals had offered inflated assessments of Iraqi military capability. This is during the Iraq war, the review of the Iraq war. General Odenero's successor, General Mark Milley, attempted to bury the work and its lessons. General Omar Jones, the Army's senior public affairs officer, who had tried to block a conference that aimed to draw lessons from the Miley massacre, supported General Milley's effort to quash the Iraq study. Quash the Iraq study. Milley eventually agreed to publish the Iraq war history after the story appeared in the press. General Milley was successful, however, in shelving plans to incorporate the findings into the Army's professional military education, releasing the full declassified archives that accompany the history and printing copies for military leaders and soldiers. A bootleg version from Amazon is now the easiest way to get the copy. So this dude has a history of not being accountable. So maybe we shouldn't be surprised. You bring up an interesting point. I made a similar observation, having covered the Benghazi attacks, that some of the very same players who sought to provably, because we eventually got the documents, cover up the nature of the Benghazi attacks and the request for security that had been ignored and denied, and the ability to try to mount the rescue during the attacks that was turned away. Some of the same people involved in that cover-up are back, and they're involved in the Afghanistan operation. And I think it goes to show that too often they talk about accountability, but what they really seem to try to do is 
cover things up or explain it away. And if you do that, if that's your goal, you're going to repeat the mistakes because the same people, as you say, are going to be there later. Why is their judgment going to be any better the second time around if they were never held accountable for what happened in the past? Yes. And General Austin's in this article too. He was back there doing part of this. I'm not saying he was covering things up, but he was there at this time. And I think you're right. And you're seeing it exactly now. I mean, they're trying to explain away what happened literally as we speak with Blinken on television. They're explaining it away. They have an answer for everything, but nobody's going to be held accountable. And I don't think anyone's going to be fired. And you're right. Why should we expect anything different? Again, I don't want to be too dramatic, but I've never felt this way before. I've been angry. We all get angry in politics. We have certain sides. We like whatever. But I've seen nothing like this before. And to leave Americans there. And I talked to my friend, and I'm sure you've been talking to people on the ground there a lot. You know, I talked to my friend who's helping these operations just yesterday. And they told me of these just atrocities that are happening as we speak to mostly women and children that we'll probably never see. I mean, that's the reason the line of the song is, can't hear them scream if you're not on TV. But it's just the worst is the worst. And it just makes me sick. I have this sickening feeling in my stomach and I don't see it getting better. I see it getting worse. And every time I see them try to explain it away, you know, I don't know about you, but I'll ask you a question. If this had come down and the Taliban overran much quicker than we thought, and our administration would come out and said, look, we made a mistake. We never saw this coming. We planned badly. We should have been there but we're going to react and we're going to extend the deadline till all our people get out. And if they don't, we know where the villages of the Taliban leaders live and they will not exist if they don't do that. And we're going to work with the international community, get their citizens out, get our equipment out. And it's not perfect, but we understand we made a mistake and we're going to try to do the best we can to rectify it in a very challenging situation. If they would have said that, how would have you felt? Would you felt maybe a little better about where we're at? Well, I think that's a better move, actually, you know, for them to reassure the public that they understood something went wrong and they're not going to continue the same course. But I would add to that, I would like to hear them say something like, we are consulting now some analysts or some experts who did predict this, that we're not in the forefront. And we are removing from this decision process while we analyze it, all the people that were so wrong yet again, about what was going to happen in this, these intelligence analyses. I heard um, Secretary Blinken, as you said, not long ago today, talk about an intel assessment of something. And I'm thinking, but you've already told us your intel assessments on this were like radically wrong. And no one's been fired or removed from the chain that we know of. And now you're telling us you're relying on more intel assessments from these people. So people out there aren't stupid. You know, they use their common sense and their logic, and that just doesn't really make sense to them, I think. No, I think you're right. I think, you know, they're counting on the fact that so much of our citizenry is so tribally locked on both sides that their narrative will suffice to appease their base and they'll get away with it. I think it's completely political operation. Because you're right, if it was anything about military or foreign policy or common sense, people would be fired, people resign. But I think there's a lot of people who are going to just parrot, hey, what, hey, whatever was going to happen was going to happen. We had to get out. Oh, you didn't want us to get out of Afghanistan and parrot the what an amazing airlift operation never before in history. 
It reminds me, frankly, of some of the, the Trump loyalists who believe he won in a landslide. You know, oh, he won in a landslide. Oh, it was an extraordinary success. We have this deep sickness in our culture that we're so blinded by our political allegiances, we can't even admit what is so obvious in front of our face. As you said, a sixth grader playing risk could say, let's get our citizens and equipment out before our soldiers leave. It's not hard, but we're so malignant in our culture and the media is so malignant in its coverage that I think politicians and the guy in the basement who's driving this operation, who I think is really smart, feel that they can say whatever they want because all they have to do is bring up the other side and people will echo their narrative and they won't be punished. It'll be very interesting. I said in my statement that this is not a political song. It's a moral song. And I know that almost sounds naive in this day and age because everything's political. And I understand that Sean Hannity is going to like the song and played it last night. I understand that. But I do believe, and I can say that if President Trump had made the same decisions, we're in the same place, the same song would be out and the names would change. I do believe that. And I wish more people looked at it as a moral crisis, not a political one. I'd be interested on your take, how the media covered this and how they're covering it now. Because I thought in the beginning, there was some actual real news, like what you have done throughout your whole career, <laughs> which I respect. The fact that they got the phone call, the Reuters broke the phone call with the president and the Afghan head. I'm like, I was excited to see real news, but I don't see much of that anymore. What is your kind of take? I'd be fascinated to hear on how they reported it and where they're going with it. Well, I've written about how news coverage I saw change during my years. You know, I was at CNN back when it was a news organization many years ago. And then I was at CBS, worked at PBS as well. And the thing that started to happen, they would initially encourage coverage of stories. I got assigned to cover the Benghazi disaster. That wasn't my idea. I wasn't looking at it. CBS said, there's something to be seen here. Look into it. I started breaking stories. So they like it at first because at their heart, there are a lot of good news people, at least there were within these news organizations. Then something happens. And I can only give little bits and pieces because I'm not privy to what all happens, but pressure comes to bear upon the news organization within and from without, whereby you start hearing these conflicts. All of a sudden, when I could be breaking more important, better stories as I develop better sources, as time goes on, on a developing story, I would hear, let's just take a day off. Let's mm. not pile on. Let's give it a rest. Let's wait until there's a congressional hearing. That was a big one. Well, and then I got told with Benghazi when almost all news coverage interest stopped on evening news after I was assigned to cover the story and broke a lot of news. They said, well, let's wait till there's a congressional hearing and everybody's covering something. In other words, there was some sense that we were not to be out front, the opposite of what news is supposed to do. We were not to be breaking something original, but if everybody was covering a statement that appeared at a congressional hearing or something, then we could too. But short of that, they didn't want to hear from the whistleblowers or the people inside, in this case, the Obama administration, which were a lot of my sources who are coming forward and talking about it. And again, that doesn't pass the common sense test. So, you know, something's going on. And I can tell you that people during that time period, people from the White House, we're almost daily contacting my bureau chief in Washington, D.C. to complain and spin. And they were also assigned to talk to 
to call the New York, I'm based in DC, to call the movers and shakers in New York and complain and spin. And then to also complain to the White House correspondent because I'm the investigative reporter. So the staff of the White House will go to the beat reporter and say, you know, Cheryl's really messing up things for you. We're not going to talk to you if Cheryl keeps covering those stories. And then they tell the morning show, you know, you are going to get the next interview with, in this case, Michelle Obama, but we're going to pull you off the list if you air Cheryl's stories, you know, on, Uh on this topic. So there's just all kinds of things that come into play. And I think initially the media obviously found it hard to ignore some of what was happening with the story, but I assume at news organizations across the country, pressure is coming to bear in the ways that it does so that certain things maybe won't be covered as aggressively as they were in the beginning. Yeah, it's just so sad to me. Again, thank you for being one of the few rebels, but I think at the end of the day that the media may be our biggest danger. If there's no accountability and no fairness and no willingness to tell the stories, as I said, in a moral way, I don't know what we're going to do. I was encouraged at the beginning with the New York Times. I think the Washington Post did some really good reporting on Afghanistan, but I fear as a nation, and this is not just the media, it's, you know, we have a very short attention span and it's not on TV anymore. And those women in Afghanistan are still going to be suffering and for a long time. And it's part of my mission not to forget them. And I wish I had better skills than writing a song, but that's all I can do. And I think it's incumbent on all of us to keep their situation front and center as much as we can, even if it's just a small group of us and we do it ourselves. And We help those rescuing people. We help the refugees. And as time goes on, we still kind of maybe build an underground railroad to get people out. Because I know many stories of people that deserve to get out and just can't get out. But I wish it wasn't such a depressing time. (laughs) Well, let's end by talking about something else, which is related. But how do you know so much about what's going on and what's your connection to the military? Because I read a little bit about your interest and involvement or your affinity for those who've served our country. Yeah, you know, I don't have any military in my family. I've always respected the military. During the first Iraq war, I started getting emails from our soldiers in theater and they would tell me how much music mattered to them. And it would be so many different contexts. You know, I listened to Superman before I go on mission to, you know, to kind of get focused or I listen to it when I come back to forget about everything or to think of home. And so I just saw how much music kind of as a therapy mattered to our soldiers in theater. And, and also you'll appreciate this as a reporter, you know, I would get emails from soldiers in Fallujah and they would say, don't watch the news. This is really what's happening. So it was my first kind of experience understanding that maybe what everything's on TV and what they're telling me ain't the facts. So I just started working with various organizations, USO. I did a CD for the Troops Project. We gave a bunch of CDs from artists, became really good buddies with Gary Sinise and his Lieutenant Dan band and started working with his foundation. So it's always been a passion of mine, especially the families, Gold Star families. I wrote a bunch of songs, Two Lights, No Turn Unknown Soldier, that kind of references the troops challenges. And I just met some interesting people throughout my time. And the one person that's helped organizing these evacs, I've known for a while. It just happens I have some friends doing interesting things, but that's kind of it. Again, I don't have a ton of friends in the military or a ton of family, but I always believe, you know, I say it, there are heart and spine. And I really feel for the vets and the families who lost loved ones or sacrificed in Afghanistan, because I know many of them are really hurting right now. And I don't blame them. General Lost.
Today's interview with John Andrasik. You can watch the video version on my video channel at Rumble. Check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours. This week, we'll talk about my investigation into the way COVID deaths have been miscounted. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself. All right, folks, all of you know the story about my crick in my neck and how I bought a my pillow a few years ago, and all of a sudden, my neck just healed up. In fact, the orthopedist couldn't figure out what the heck had John done. I, it was simple. I just bought one of Mike Lindell's pillows, and I all of a sudden found I wasn't sleeping right on my pillow. Mike's pillows did the trick. Well, guess what? He's done it again. He's got something new. He's now introducing his new My Slippers. You want the best slipper ever, the best foot experience late at night. Well, Mike has got, he took over two years to develop this. He designed it to wear this slipper indoor and outdoor all day long. It's comfortable, it's durable. It's made with my pillow foam and impact gel to help prevent fatigue in the slipper. And it's made with quality leather suede. They look good, they feel good, they wear good. For a limited time now, Mike is offering 50% off his new My Slippers. You will also receive a free book with any purchase. The My Slippers are so comfortable that you'll want to get some for the whole family. It's a great gift, especially heading into Springtown. So here, here's what you do. You go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square and use the promo code JUSTNEWS. That's easy to remember, right? The promo code JUSTNEWS and you will get deep discounts on all the MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets the MyPillow mattress topper, and of course, the MyPillow towel set. And don't forget, y'all want those my slippers. You got to have them. They're incredible. Here's another way you can take advantage of this. You can call 800-951-3715 and use the promo code JUSTNEWS when someone picks up. Call 800-951-3715. Use the promo code JUSTNEWS. Pretty simple stuff for the best slipper sheet pillow experience of your life.